The Kin. History. Since the beginnings of witchcraft, blood has always been a medium for channeling magic. Blood is the essence of life. It bears connections and carries identity. There is memory and emotion in the blood. It is our blood that makes us who and what we are. The first way in which we belong to anything is through the ties of our blood. It is where individuality meets community. It is a legacy inherited from those who came before and etched into our very essence a song for which a new verse is written each passing generation. Every witch knows some small amount of blood magic. It is a fundament of the magical arts, though the oldest and most common technique is a crude, dangerous affair. When witches lack for materials to aid in their spellcasting, they siphon power from their blood, draining themselves in substitution. For a long time, this was thought to be the extent of blood's magical utility. Then, the first of our kind thought to delve deeper, to explore the mystery of why blood was so versatile and potent within the craft. Nadalus was, and remains, our eldest and the first nexus. It was they who discovered that there was more to blood than a resource to be tapped. While other sages sat in libraries, amassing their knowledge and insulating themselves from the world, Nadalus roved. Traveling the length of the bog, they sought not the most powerful witches they could find, but those with the longest unbroken family lines. Seven followers were recruited from among these prospects, the most venerable witches of each bloodline. With Nadalus at the fore, they began to study the hidden nature of blood and developed the rite of joining. When the elders joined their bloodlines in Nadalus, the kin was born as a clan. Nadalus became our nexus in truth, the connecting point between seven families made one. Their followers were the first elders, oldest living members of their bloodlines and precedent upon which the council would be built. Where our strength has ever been in community, the first works of our fledgling clan were to gather to common land and record our members in the sanguine ledger. Thus established, we set about to ensure our longevity and plumb deeper mysteries. The cycle moves ever onward, and in the face of Nadalus's inevitable mortality, the making of a nexus became tradition. A successor was trained for each generation, roaming our lands as did Nadalus himself, and joining the blood of each new aspirant. Meanwhile, the council sought worldly matters from their seat of power, forging the edicts that hold until this day. Under their measured and compassionate rule, we prospered, and the research of blood magic thrived. New arts were discovered, from blood healing to the shifting of forms to the very conjuring of flame and more. We reached our prime in spectacular fashion, a beacon of strength and community. As growth moves ever into withering, so too were our fortunes not to last. At the height of the learning, our numbers were greater than all but the wilders. Disease took no purchase among us. Physic, both mundane and magical, made injuries trivial, and more young were born or joined to us every day. When the wars of the breaking began, fear of our growing might drove the other witching clans to ally against us. Only the wilders were forgotten, as the rest came to pick our bones. Against such onslaught, our defenses were desperate, 
and our retaliation swift, but all our efforts did little to stem our losses. By the time their alliance crumbled, we were already the embers of what we once were, and by the time of the Calamity and Idle Fen, it was all we could do to hold on to what little we had left. We had long since closed ourselves off to the suffering of the world, but in that time of greatest dying, our Nexus took matters into their own hands, lending their strength to the humanitarian coalition which would, in time, become the Circle. We stand now in the shadow of our former selves. Our family has been ravaged, bloodlines fractured or even ended in the violence. Raised settlements and empty homes often stand as the only monument to the fallen. Even knowing the extent of the loss is difficult, perhaps you can feel some measure of it in the waning power within your veins. There is no returning to what we once were. The work of recovery will be slow, and it must change us. It will be the duty of the young to challenge our traditions, the duty of the old to uphold our values, and the duty of us all to persevere. We are the kin, and as long as we have each other, we are not lost. The People Culture To the kin, the clan is more than a social or philosophical organization. It is a family in the literal sense. Kin can feel a deep connection to each other in their blood through the joining which breeds inherent trust. It is common for kin to refer to each other cordially as cousin, whether or not they belong to the same bloodline, and they treat each other accordingly. Even those who are otherwise complete strangers have the benefit of the doubt from each other on first meeting, as they are taught from a young age to offer fellow kin kindness and support. Emotion has a way of running wild among the kin. Perhaps it is something in the power of their blood that sweeps them up, or perhaps it is simply their way. No matter where it comes from, this is something the kin embrace. Their feelings and passions are a part of who they are, and denying that would mean being false to oneself and one's family. The kin believe that self-control can only be attained by learning to work with and through emotions, not suppressing them. Crying is not seen as a sign of weakness, and animated or even heated discussions are often welcomed. Better to express what is inside, rather than hide it. All of the kin's ways are passed on by example. Among this clan, leading and parenting are duties that are inextricably linked. Great importance is placed on the example one sets for those who look to them for guidance, and the legacy one generation leaves for the next. To shape the future through the youth is a great privilege and prerogative, but it is also a burden that obliges those with influence to rise to the highest possible standard. Names Among the kin, naming conventions state that the given name comes first, followed by a surname with a prefix that denotes gender preference. For those with a masculine identity, the proper prefix is Z, while those with a feminine identity use Va. For those agnostic of gender or defiant of a binary identity, the prefix is K. These prefixes are subject to change at any time, should a kin choose. Some examples run as follows. He, him, Corbin Zeophanus. She, her, Teletha Vasant. They, there, Altav K. Diraem. Society. Within kin settlements, members of the same bloodline live together on a homestead. Typically, these are made up of a large hall, longhouse, or collection of smaller homes on a claimed plot of land. No matter what the exact setup, 
Kin families stay close and privacy is not a huge concern. Communal sleeping is the norm. If anything, most kin find it isolating and lonely to be without company for long, and living alone would be anathema to them. Long journeys through the bog can be extra taxing on the kin for this reason. Beyond the magical implications, joinings serve the kin as a commitment ceremony. The first joining that any of this clan performs is with the Nexus after their 18th birthday. It is part of their coming of age and a rite of passage to mark their true entry into the kin. Until then, the details and process of the ceremony are kept secret to prevent unready children from trying to perform a joining before their time. Once a kin is aware of how to perform a joining, the next is usually that of a romantic partnership officiated and witnessed by an elder. That said, romantic monogamy, while not entirely unheard of, is very much in the minority among the kin, and joinings can also be performed as a sign of lifelong platonic commitment. The oldest observed tradition is that when one kin joins the bloodline of another fully, taking their name and moving into their homestead, a dowry is paid to the bloodline they leave. The term leave is relative here. Once you are born or joined to a bloodline, true leaving is impossible. But as one bloodline is gaining a new family member, it is seen as good form to attempt to compensate the other in kind. Since the breaking, marriage and child-raising norms have deviated increasingly from any other form of tradition. The breaking made orphans and widows of so many that adoption and the finding of family have become commonplace. Children being raised by a bloodline they were not born to will keep their born name until such time as they are able to join into their caretaker family in full, or may choose not to, as the case may be. In areas of total devastation, adults may join in groups to start a new bloodline with a new name. Folklore A Lost Bloodline there are many who claim to remember an ancient bloodline which carried wealth, power, and influence like no other. They claim that through the years this bloodline became increasingly decadent in its opulence and sought ever greater and more depraved blood arts to satisfy their appetites for extravagance and pleasure. One night, amidst a debaucherous masquerade, every member of the bloodline simply vanished. Those who went to investigate found only an empty homestead, possessions left behind, and feast half-eaten. The mystery of what happened to them remains to this day, but the veracity of this legend is dubious at best, as no two retellers ever seem to agree on what this bloodline's name was or where they lived. The Bewitching Blade During the height of the breaking, when the violence and hatred had reached a fever pitch, the secret of blood-iron forging was first discovered. Where this precious material is now scarce, it is said that a mighty weapon of great size and greater power was once forged of it. Where this precious material is now scarce, it is said that a mighty weapon of great size and greater power was once forged of it. This bewitching blade carried an indelible malice inside of it, a quenchless bloodlust that drove its wielder to revel in war and killing. It spurred them to ever greater madness, until at last they were expelled from the bog, taking their cursed blade and the secret of its forging with them. Despite years of searching, no trace of this weapon or its wielder has ever been discovered. It would seem to be either a parable about the way we lose ourselves in war, or a secret very deliberately hidden. Wild Blood Great care must be taken by kin using the blood of beasts to take new forms. 
The rush of transformation can be intoxicating, drawing kin further into its depths until they stray beyond the limits of humanity to a wild place from which there is no return. It is said that those who succumb to this call completely can taint the blood of those most closely connected to them through the bonds of family or the joining. If they too stray, the call can become a cursed plague. The Structure Community Kin settlements are on average the largest in the bog, coming the closest to what would resemble a conventional township. This is due to both the population they need to house and the amount of construction such a workforce is able to accomplish. Homesteads are built close together inside of cultivated land, usually nearby natural resources, or features that make them more defensible. The closer one gets to the heart of kin territory, the larger these townships get. The largest of all is Vitea, the seat of kin power. After Idelfen, it is the only settlement that qualifies as a city. Each township has a great hall that is primarily used for the instruction of young witches in the blood arts. Local and traveling masters alike gather to share their magic to all young regardless of bloodline, as when the next generation learns, the kin as a whole is bolstered. When the occasion calls for it, these halls are also used for official matters such as assemblies, debates among elders, and hearings. They even include quarters for important visitors, whether ambassadors, counselors, or the nexus themselves. Between all of these functions, the upkeep of a great hall tends to be a point of pride for its community. Beneath the great hall lies a township's crypt. Whole bodies are not usually interred by the kin, instead the dead are exsanguinated. Extracted blood is then mixed with an agent to keep it from clotting, and stored in vials along with a bone plaque engraved with the name of the deceased. The rest of the body is then burned, the ashes mixed in with the peat pits in the bottom of the crypt. Within these pits, those few kin who need to be preserved are kept. Mummified alive in a ritual that keeps them in deathless slumber, these kin can be revived by the blood of an elder, of their line when their wisdom is needed by later generations. Authority The oldest living member of each bloodline is known as the Elder. An Elder has full authority over their bloodline in all ways that are not superseded by a higher power, and are formally called by the name of their line. Nadalus was the origin of the title of Eldest, being the oldest of all bloodlines in the kin, and due to the nature of the Nexus, this title has been passed down. All Nexus are eldest, and ultimately have the executive authority that comes with the title. Since the time of Nadalus's first followers, there have always been seven bloodlines who govern the rest from a hall at the heart of kin lands called the Atrium. These are the Council, who make the laws that the kin live by. Every seven years, the members of the Council are re-elected by the Elders, the ceremony is long, with multiple rounds of voting, where candidates are eliminated from the running until those seven elders with the most support among their peers are selected. While there is no law stating that the council must comprise exactly seven members, the tradition passed down from the first elders has been upheld. The final authority, among the greatest servant of the kin, is the Nexus. A Nexus's first duty is to be the bond between all members of the kin, the link to whom all bloodlines and all members are joined. They roam kin lands, meeting and joining with each new member when the witch comes of age, a tireless process, 
that keeps them always on the move. In this way, all kin live in them, and however faintly, in each other. It is what keeps the kin powerful, but none so much as the Nexus themselves. The Nexus is a blood witch of transcendent, nearly mythical power. During the breaking, entire battles were fought between opposing armies and the Nexus alone, when the kin's forces were otherwise spread thin. When it comes time to pass on such power to an apprentice, the preparations take years of arduous training and conditioning. Currently, the kin is on their 99th Nexus, who has held the position for 12 years. The Work Economy Of all the clans, the kin has the largest population centers on average by a wide margin. This means that they have the biggest labor force to work with, but also the greatest needs to consider within their townships. Given the nature of the bog, this is no small challenge. Other clans do not keep communities of such size for good reason. The bog does not typically support them, and it takes a great deal of effort and trade to keep them going. In the learning, there were very few communities within the kin that produced more than they consumed. And this was a vulnerability that the breaking exploited without mercy. The cessation of trade between clans was the first blow to the kin before violence even started. Communities on the fringes suffered most, being the last stop on the kin's supply lines made their needs nearly impossible to meet. When war broke out in earnest, many crumpled with minimal resistance. Over the course of the breaking, as much effort was put into replanting farms with staple crops, and attempting to solve the issue of self-sufficiency as mounting a martial defense. Tragically, the kin's shrinking border ended the shortages before their ingenuity could. Nowadays, the kin may be smaller, but their economy is more stable and their determination to survive greater than ever. Communities with stronger food production work tirelessly with the understanding that lives depend on it, and those without plentiful farms focus on manufacturing goods in trade with the closest thing to an industry the bog has to offer. The production of fine linen and woven bands are both common among the kin, as are papyrus making and bookbinding. There are a few skilled crafters and tradesfolk, artisans, artists, and the like in every community, but they are rarer now than they used to be. Most luxury goods are now passed from parents to children as heirlooms. Technology With the knowledge of blood came knowledge of anatomy and advancements in physic not seen anywhere else in the bog. The kin were the first to develop surgical technique, and the implements thereof often carved from bone. Bog iron surgeon kits are highly prized for their healing magic they inherently carry, but are predictably rare. The most powerful of all kin advancements bridges the gap between material science and magic. It is a substance referred to as blood iron, and its making is a lost art. Blood iron is a more potent tool for the kin's magic than even the ore pulled from the bog, sought by many and guarded by the elders, obscenely dangerous in the wrong hands. The counselors each carry a ritual knife made of the substance, as a symbol of office, but no one else has yet to discover more than a sliver the size of a nail. Even so, that amount alone can boost a blood witch's efficacy profoundly. Magic Kin magic is cast first and foremost through blood, but also related material. Bones, corpse ash, grave dirt, locks of hair, and the like. Witches of other clans use their ritual knives to draw blood for their work. The kin have a word for this practice. Foolish. 
The craft is full of witches with scars across their palms, born of drawing blood in what the kin consider the stupidest way imaginable. As an alternative, the kin carry ritual blood letters, long and sharp needles typically made of bone and hidden on one's person. Whether a hair ornament, a cloak pin, or a part of a quill set, a kin never goes anywhere without a more refined way to draw blood. When learning a blood art, the witch takes something into themselves. Even when some manner of ritual or component is required to draw it out, the source of the power lies within. This is distinct from other clans' magic, and though the convenience of not always needing to read from a grimoire or doodle sigils in the dirt is considerable, the reality of this distinction necessitates caution. The act of taking in a blood art, of joining it to one's essence, changes the witch irrevocably. Simply learning the magic can change who or even what the witch is. Due to this, kin witches must be very careful and selective of what they seek when delving into the craft. Blood healing is one of the foremost arts of the kin thanks to its sheer utility. It has helped kin witches become the longest living of any clan, and in better times, outsiders would come from far and wide to seek treatment for all manner of maladies from kin healers. The knowledge of the human body gained through this led soon to the art of shape-shifting, which has been taken to the extreme. For full-body changes, the blood of various creatures is kept in reliquaries as a catalyst. More minor modifications, however, are often kept permanently as fashion statements or measures of self-expression. The passion of the kin is channeled into another standout art of theirs, the conjuring of flame. Aside from its uses in the day-to-day, -day, fire is a fearsome weapon, feared both by enemies of the clan and the wild things of the bog alike. Bloodlines a note from staff. There are countless bloodlines within the kin, but listed below are the seven most well-known that currently serve on the council. When it comes time to make a character, please feel free to choose to descend from one of these or to submit your own for approval. Asphogia. Known for its magical potency and exploration of the blood arts, the line of Asphogia delves into greater secrets and contributes to the schooling of young witches on a level unheard of in other lines. The libraries of the Asphagia are legend among the kin, labyrinthine affairs filled with more knowledge than any witch could possibly hope to learn in a lifetime. Kin of this line are known to carry a mystical air and a deep understanding of the blood. Korax Known for its perseverance during the breaking, the line of Korax has suffered greatly and come through its trials unbroken. When townships fell one after another in that time of great dying, it was the Korax who strove in vain to hold the line and spearheaded evacuations. Now they run charitable relief efforts to those communities most stricken. Kin of this line are known for a grim but compassionate demeanor, and are often adopted orphans. Diraham Known for its contributions to the kin's forces during the breaking, the line of Diraeum produces fierce and disciplined warrior witches. There's a joke amongst the kin that one can often tell a Diraeum by the volume at which they're speaking. While glib, this does carry a certain truth to it. It is the passion and spirit of the Diraeum that fuel the fires they are able to wield. Kin of this line are often soldiers and hunters of beasts both in the bog and otherwise. Ephanus. Known for its influence in kin politics, there has never at any point in their long history been a council on which an Ephanus did not serve. This is not simply a matter of legacy or pomp, however. 
the Athenus make it a point to earn their station by getting as involved as possible with the clan's affairs. Kin of this line are known as great movers and shakers, always with the betterment of the family at heart. Locrist. Known for its adherence to tradition, the line of Locrist abhor that the kin should ever forget its roots. Locrist can often be found tending to crypts and collecting folklore. It is a Locrist who currently keeps the Sanguine Ledger up to date. Their archives of obscure ancestral rites are often resources even for the council. Kin of this line are known to be greatly concerned with legacies, and strict on matters of form. Sont. Known and beloved by kin everywhere, the line of Sont is famed for the good-natured and charming witches it raises. Sont make friends everywhere they go through blood healing, gifts of sweets, good works, or any other means they can manage. Oftentimes, just hearing the name is enough to lift the mood. Kin of this line are known to care deeply for the plight of their family, and take an interest in problems that are not their own. Yisteroth Known for unpredictable natures and progressive agendas, the line of Yisteroth always strains at the limit of what the kin could and should be. They live only in the most remote townships on the edges of the wilds, hunting ever greater beasts to expand their reliquary collections, and studying their prey to learn its ways. Kin of this line are known for their eccentric manner and love of adopting inhuman physical traits. Diplomacy The Rooted During the slaughter, there were some who were fortunate enough to be slain outright. Then there were those who fell prey to the Rooted. Death by their hands came only after great anguish. When we thought to turn to them for supplies, our people were poisoned with tainted goods, and when we stood against them on the field, they brought our people low with disease. The plagues they wrought were too virulent even for our blood healing to manage, their contagion so potent that in the worst times we were forced to turn our own dying refugees away. In the end, we could only defend ourselves by robbing them of their ability to continue their campaign. We hunted their leadership to extinction, and let the rest busy themselves managing their own affairs. The relationship we now have with the Rooted is strained, at best, but we recognize that when it came to harm, we gave unto them as good as we got. This is not a point of pride, merely what was necessary to ensure our survival at the time. The ways of the Rooted are not entirely strange to us. They base their magic and intuition and connection as we do, only with a different source. They have healers, work with diseases and toxins. If we can put the hurts of the past aside, we may be able to work to mend the future together. The Veil Walkers Even with their combined might, the three other clans that allied against us lacked the sheer weight of numbers for a sustained fight. The Veil Walkers solved this issue handily by using our own dead against us. As it turns out, the only thing more demoralizing than a host with no compassion, mercy, restraint, or fear is one that also wears the faces of your fallen family. When the time came to avenge ourselves upon the Veil Walkers, it lacked those same qualities in equal measure. We learned swiftly that bringing down a necromancer did not fell the undead they commanded, but it did release them from servitude. At that point, it was only a matter of driving the nightmares from our doorstep to that of their creators and letting the Veil Walkers put down what they had raised. Were it not for the Pale March, it is unlikely that we would wish to associate with the Veil Walkers. 
their art is inherently dangerous, as defiance of the cycle always is, and their wanton wielding of it cost us dearly. We are glad to see that they are organizing and demanding accountability from their own. Our dispute was never one of ideology, and it seems clear that we understand each other's ways. If they can learn responsibility as well, we may yet leverage that commonality into a working relationship. The Watchers We were largely unaware of the true role of the Watchers in our downfall for much of the breaking. At first, it seemed they were simply in a supporting role to the others in their alliance, standing at the rear of formations and blessing the forces arrayed before them with wards that shrugged off our strongest spells. The fact that they were not only complicit, but in actuality the masterminds of the atrocities made against us was only revealed some time later, and strangely by their own ambassadors. It is difficult to know what to make of the Watchers and their confession. On the one hand, it is admirable that they take ownership of their actions of their own accord. When they claim that they are acting in good faith to make reparations, we believe them. On the other hand, we still have no knowledge of why they sought our destruction in the first place. Whatever the case, it is always a calculation with the Watchers, cold and logical, heedless of the human suffering it may bring. We will accept the aid that they offer, there is little reason not to, but we will keep a wary eye trained on them while we do so. Perhaps if we keep them close, they may yet see the humanity that another callous decision stands to threaten. The Wilders Of all the atrocities we suffered over the course of the breaking, so few were at the hands of the Wilders that they are nearly beyond mentioning. The Wilders were not part of the alliance that started the breaking. When they attacked our lands, it was for their own survival, and they were repulsed so quickly and thoroughly that such raids soon ceased. Throughout much of the breaking, we simply refused to deal with each other, and perhaps that was for the best. Now we recognize a plight in them that is similar to our own. They say that many wilder bands were lost amidst the violence, wiped out, irreplaceable. This is a pain we know. The Wilders are a clan without magic, but not one without spirit. We are uncertain, both how we can work with them and what they wish their place to be, but there is potential there, even if they dwell overly on the past. They need to be willing to grow, and become something greater than they have been. We need to stand ready to give them a chance, should they choose to do so. The Circle After all that we have been through, trust will not come easily. In saner times, this would spell disaster for a venture like the Circle. We would say that we cannot join a coven in anything but perfect love and perfect trust. Alas, these are not saner times. Where the other clans content to lick their wounds in private, perhaps we could do the same. But where unity is the watchword of the day, we can ill afford to be left without a seat at the table. To allow this would be to invite another wave of devastation. Sharing our gifts and our magic will serve our interests. If the other clans understand us, perhaps they need not fear us. Moreover, those who see our ways may yet wish to join. The circle is an opportunity. We must avail ourselves of it in good faith if we are to have any future at all.